Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Ashley Solis is a high school senior who must divide her time between school and supporting her family as a second-generation Mexican-American. Located in California's working-class town, the harshness of the agricultural labor in the strawberry fields shares a stark contrast with the beautiful nature and relationship to her spiritual, ancestral upbringing. The film is called Fruits of Labor, and it is all of that and so much more. We really dig into the lives of Ashley and Beatrice and Adrian and so many others in the film, and we get a sense of what their life is like, what it is like to work in the fields, but also to live in a community where opportunities are are limited, and that is what we where we find ourselves in Fruits of Labor. And I want to welcome to the program the director, producer, and cinematographer as well, and that would be Emily Cohen Ibanez. Emily, welcome to Film School Radio. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor. Thanks for inviting me. I would like to know how you found Ashley because she's a great character in terms of she's a great person, but I mean, in terms of following somebody who can tell a greater story, she certainly uh, fits the bill. I met her when she was just turning 15 years old. Um, so a couple of years before actually starting to film. And I was, uh, had done a, created a video collective with my college students along with these youth in her town. And Ashley was one of these young people and she just stood out. I mean, she's an intelligent young woman and from, and from a young age, she not only cared about herself and in bettering her situation herself, but that of her family and her community at large. And I found that really admirable yeah. for someone so young. And she was actively involved in um, advocacy uh, around creating this community garden in her in her town. And so that, you know, I, I just found that striking and I just also connected with her. I think probably on a personal level, sometimes we, don't, I don't know, you know, we just connect with people. I got to know her and her family over a, a couple of years and said, wow, you know, what really what inspired to finally say, you know what, we need to make a film here was after the election. Um, and there was an uptick in ice raids in her community and it was threatening her family. And it's not, it's an experience that's personal to Ashley and her family, but unfortunately is common. And there's many Ashleys in the world. And, but she was really, you know, courageous, excited about the documentary process and coming on board with me. And as a documentary filmmaker, for me, I, I can't do this kind of close, intimate work with someone who's just not really excited about it and, and, and wanting to dive in. And, and she had the courage and tenacity to say yes. And, and we had the relationship that I knew, you know, I felt like there was mutual trust. I'm trying to think of another kind of segment of American society where the person who's president of the United States has more of an impact on a community. This is a broad statement, so I'm not sure if I'm being exactly accurate, but it certainly feels like in the last 10 years or so, people who live in an immigrant community seem to be more at the whim of the person at the top of the government pyramid 
in terms of how they're treated, how the impact on their direct impact on their lives. You described the uptick in the ICE raids on those, that community. We can go back to even to the Obama administration. There was actually an increase in deportation, something that really isn't thought of when you think of Obama. But it was so it it seems that and certainly in the last 10 years or so, this has had a, so much more of a direct impact on an immigrant community than I think it would have previously. And I may be wrong in that statement, but no, I think you're right. And I think that real I mean, I think there's been xenophobia in the history of in the founding of the United States. We say yeah. it's a country of immigrants. But if you look at the history, there's been um, denigration and denial, especially um, immigrants coming from the Southern hemisphere. But even when we looked at World War II, you know, we kind of think of ourselves as the heroes, but actually we denied a lot of people escaping Germany at the time, Nazi Germany at the time. So, you know, you can really look at this history of, of sometimes welcoming, but oftentimes also denying people and, and denigrating people and, and using immigrants as a scapegoat. Yeah. But I think something in the contemporary moment, the shift really happened after 9-11. Um, and we had with George Bush created Homeland Security and especially ICE. That was a new group. Uh, you always had immigration issues, but it, you know, during the Reagan years, for I remember as a little girl, when amnesty happened, for example, and I, and I don't, I'm not a fan of Reagan, but there was amnesty and that allowed people who had been in the country. Um, I think it was like, you had to be eight years or more in the country to get uh, relief and get citizenship. Um, I think we're due for an amnesty and, and the political climate look, even with Biden, look what just happened with Haitian migrants in Texas. And those images are horrifying. This is an ongoing, you know, I, I think for um, Latino community, but also Haitian community, so many different immigrant communities, especially those who are people of color, have been dealing with this kind of racism and discrimination. And you can even look at the differences between how it is to get a visa even to travel to the United States from my family's from Colombia. It's very difficult. And even though you know, billions of dollars invested in doing a war. Um, and yet it's very hard to get into this country. And so there's different, depending on countries, different kinds of policies with, you know, Mexican and Central American migrants, we have a dependency on this migration for our food system. And I think part of the, the use of, you know, deportation, it's when it's a way to um, not allow people to organize. And so, um, you know, this would happen even, uh, we can see waves and even in Ashley's town, you know, we had Chinese workers. And then when people start getting organized, you get the Chinese Exclusion Act. And, you know, so there's all these moments that uh, immigration policies become more draconian in a way to also manage labor, even labor that we're very dependent on. And we're kind of shifting in the film, we see it saw that was reacting to an increase of child labor that has existed in agricultural labor in the United States since slavery. But there, you know, there being an increase in that moment. And now we're seeing kind of a reintroduction of really like the Bracero programs of the 50s and 60s of these guest worker programs where now we're isolating workers and they can't even, they, can, they are not allowed to mingle in the cities. They're put in housing units that are separated from the communities and there's tons of restrictions. So a lot of this, it's not that people don't necessarily want us here, 
they want our labor they just don't want us as human beings and so that is i think that uh that is really you know an ongoing experience but i have to say with trump there was an increased terror and denigration of the latinx community and the discourse and even with obama there were changes that trump made uh, for example, with the detention centers, and even there were the in increased ice raids and the style of the raids. Yes. Um, so I think that there, Trump, you know, there was an effect. But now look, you know, while Biden's doing certain things and there are policies that can't get, that aren't getting through Congress, like the Immigration Reform Act, which would be wonderful, providing a pathway to citizenship for workers, on one hand doing that and it's not going through, on the other hand, what happened recently in Texas is totally horrifying and uh, no better than what we experienced with Trump. Two things to say about what you said, and thank you for that one bit of information, which I was not aware of, I should have been, and I don't know why I wasn't, was this idea that children are working in the fields and that this extends really, I don't know, beyond the farm workers. I don't think it's allowed anywhere else in the economy that I know of, maybe there is, but certainly this is the predominant place in which you would find underage people under 18 working in a field all day long, well, to the exclusion of school mostly. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's great. No, thank you for bringing that up because it's a, it's, there's a historical reason for that. So what, you know, we had, uh, the way we did agriculture and domestic labor in the founding of this country was through slavery. So it was associated with black people that were considered less than human. They legally weren't given full human person status in this country. When emancipation happened, many brown and, and black folks and immigrants were still, we needed that labor for picking food and, and product and doing domestic labor. And it, so it was denigrated work. Now the New Deal happened. That was transformational for, for America. But it was the 30s. At that time was Jim Crow. So what happened was the Dixie Democrats wanted from the South, wanted to exclude black and brown people from worker protections, and they couldn't do that. So the negotiation they made with FDR on the federal level was then we'll exclude areas of the economy that are associated, which that basically black and brown people were doing, um, and it was agricultural and domestic labor. So in the United States, it's only agricultural and domestic labor where there aren't worker protections that people were granted in the New Deal in the 1930s. And that continues today. So you can be as young as 12 years old and work unlimited hours or depending on the state, 40 hours a week. Um, and it's, it's what considered one of the most dangerous forms of labor in the United States. And yet we have half a million children currently working in the fields. The, there's not good bathrooms, wage theft, under minimum wage, oftentimes not even getting an hourly wage, you're being paid piecemeal most of the time. Harassment, um, subject to all, so many different things that make people vulnerable and really terrible conditions. You have pesticides, for example. Yes, exposure to pesticides, exposure, yeah. increasingly dangerous exposure to heat, heat, which is killing. This is the silent killer. Heat kills more mm -hmm. people in this country than we have really any conception of, of just how bad it is. Yeah, and here in the West, right now, I'm working on the intercept on a story with smoke. Farm workers are now uh, organizing to get uh, hazard pay for smoky conditions because they get they spit black saliva. Asthma uh, has increased. They don't if they can't work, they don't get paid. 
So there's no, you know, protection for their livelihood. So they're forced to go out when there's these four, these huge wildfires and smoke where, you know, most people were told to stay inside and put in our air purifiers and still it's not great. Imagine if you had to work hard physical labor for a 12 hour period in smoky air. Yeah. One last thing that I want to bring up in your previous comments, which I think is just incredibly important to put some perspective on not only Ashley's story, but the story of immigrants and especially in the farm worker community. And that is Ronald Reagan, a bedrock Republican conservative. You couldn't find anyone who would be considered more of an iconic figure of the the mid 20th century in terms of who was a a conservative Republican. Mm -hmm. He proposed amnesty. And you're you're today, if a politician were to suggest that their heads would explode around people around them would go would completely freak out. And I, you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking somebody's got to do that. Someone has to have someone has to do that. I don't know if we're in the political moment, but I absolutely agree. And I think we should be demanding it. You know, like I said, the Immigration Reform Act, which to me is not that radical, can't get it through the Senate. No. So um, the most modest of of reforms you can't get through anybody of at federal level, you cannot get through the legislature. But where I do think there's hope and sorry if I'm interrupting you. No, no, not at all. We're doing a social impact campaign is really looking at state uh, uh, legislators legislation at city, uh, even city councils. So, you know, on the state level, especially California, there's some progressive things that are going to be put forward soon. This could be used as a model. So I think that we often think of Capitol Hill and it is important and we do need to push there and we have some amazing progressives there, but it's gridlock. The Senate, the existence of the Senate, it exists to, you know, because of emancipation, <laughs> whatever. I mean, the Senate, it, I, I don't really believe in the Senate, but it, it exists and there's the filibuster and it's really hard to get legislation through. So there's other ways to think of change. And I think that um, if we go back to those grassroots if we think about our state politics and even our local city politics, we can create models that then can be uh, disseminated. And you keep saying things I want to respond to because they're, they're great. These, these are things that we really need to understand, especially in the context of fruits of labor. This is really the big picture that we're talking about. And that is that some, I just saw a documentary about uh, the Civil War and something that was said in there resonated with me. And that is, the secession of the South did not succeed. However, white supremacy and the system that supported it flourished after the Civil War, which should tell us a lot about the country that we live in. And so I, I just think that that's the content you think, oh, well, the Civil War, it was settled. The South tried to succeed. It did not. It failed. And now we're back as a, a United States. But in fact, the, the, the idea of slavery and all of the things that caused this country to tear apart did. They carry on like nothing happened. Let's talk. We, we need to talk about Ashley Solis and her family and so many things about this film. As I said to you at the very beginning of our conversation, we are inside her world. And, and as you described her, she is intelligent. She's grounded, even an old soul in some ways, as you talked about her wanting to start the garden and be a part of that to give back to her community. And plus the, the family around her, her mom, Beatrice, and her brother and all that. It's just a wonderful world we find ourselves in, in the, in the respect of how they were towards one another. 
was there any reticence on her part? How did you sort of find yourself in the to be able to to be a part of her her world for that period of time? It's interesting. From my perspective, I didn't perceive reticence when I came to her and asked her about it. She was like, came on board immediately <laughs> and said yes. So she tells me, you know, she's like, no, I was nervous in the beginning, and then I just just I just trust you. And I mean, we had developed that relationship. And I think her family as well. I also respect people's boundaries. So it's not like a film is a film. It's a representation of reality. So if the family wanted to keep aspects of their life private, for me, that was really important to respect that. Um, and so, you know, it's really a collaboration. I believe, especially in verite filmmaking, it's always a collaboration with who's in front of the lens. I felt... I felt very comfortable and I felt that mutual um, comfort coming from both sides. I think it was the time spent. I think time is, yeah. is a wonderful thing. I think that it was very organic because we just were drawn to each other anyway, early on and got to know each other. Ashley, even because my sister's organization, which um, that Ashley is a part of, you know, she also knows my sister. I mean, she's met my mother. Both of our moms are single moms, um, you know, so there was just sort of a gotten to know each other well. Um, and so I think that in that spirit, there was a lot of trust developed. It's really interesting because I think even the family has in watching the film got to even reflect on the film and certain dynamics. For example, her brother has changed and, and Ashley's created certain boundaries for herself. Now she's a full-time student at, she's in college and she's going to get a certificate, a business, a certificate in Latino business at Santa Clara university, which is really exciting while she finishes her associates. She has a dream of having her own strawberry farm, and she's really serious about this, um, that will be equitable, creating an equitable model for labor. So I think from it, we continue to always discuss now that it's out in the world, it's really important to me that we're always in conversation. And so far, it's been really positive. You know, you never know, right? And there's always a risk on both sides, everyone allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and deciding to trust each other. And, and I think that magic you just feel it and you know it and uh, and move forward. Maybe gaining a little more experience with working with people and with filmmaking, it's something that one can develop. And I think that as a filmmaker, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, um, allowing to just be open with yourself as if you're, you know, in the ways that you're asking people to be open with you, it goes a long way in building trust. I, I, in a little bit of time, I think we have left. I just, I also want to talk about her mom, Beatrice, who in, in some, I'm obviously kind of the link to her past, uh, a, a woman who uh, has worked her entire life, it seems, and she's worked, I would assume, manual labor her entire life. And yet she is always looking for the best for her family, for her children, and hoping for the best. I think that sense of optimism and that sense of her commitment to doing what she does for her kids is it comes across in the film. Let's talk about Beatrice a little bit. Oh, well, she's, she's an, an incredibly intelligent woman. I mean, I loved whenever I was doing interviews, I mean, it's really centered with Ashley's story, but I really saw the mother daughter bond really at the heart of the film. Beatrice has been working mainly domestic labor since she was 13, first in Mexico. And then she crossed the border and you, you hear a little bit of her story due to an illness um, and wanting to get medical care here. 
and did get a visa and then and then stayed. Has her four children. And she's an incredibly intelligent woman who is dedicated. I mean, I think her efforts of being in this country is she really sees this country as having opportunities for her children to have a better life than her own. You know, I, I really believe that her kids are, are the dream, are her dream and um, will are fulfilling that dream. Some really hard conditions, but her and Ashford, for example, did graduate from high school first. And, you know, Ashford was the first in her family to do that. That's a really big deal. And uh, now going to college, both of them, you know, the community college on their way to an associate's and then potentially even a four-year degree, you know, their economic situation right now is, is much more stable. And Ashley has been able to help her mom as Ashley's grown to be in a better work. She was working during the film at a company that was paying her $7.25 an hour doing offices and whatever. Now she's changed to having her own business and being in charge of that um, and cleaning homes before she was doing like Airbnb and um, businesses like the Monterey Aquarium and things like that. And now she is in charge of her own business and making more money. So I think that that mother and daughter bond, you know, Ashley's learning to navigate the United States in a different way than her mom. And her mom has given her so much strength because her mom is that link, as you said, to her culture, to language, to her past, you know, that reflection on the ancestors, to her grandparents and all of that knowledge. And there's, by the way, incredible knowledge. That community garden is very important. There's very deep indigenous knowledge being communicated there among elders and kids. And that's part of the model of that garden. It's, you know, there's ways of growing food that are important to have that knowledge maintained that are perhaps models for doing a different kind of food system. Um, so having these sort of community gardens are hugely important because the way, you know, when we're doing these massive ag kind of production, if that's our only way of producing food, we can see how hard it is for people to get access to healthy food. You know, the work conditions are, are not good. So, you know, the more that city lands that people can have stewardship of city lands and their own lands um, and grow their food is it's a power land is power. And so that knowledge is incredibly important and Beatrice and the adults and their connections to, you know, elders is so important that they're passing it on to young people like Ashley. Uh, the, the film Fruits of Labor uh, will be premiering on POV. That's uh, PBS is what I consider to be one of the premier platform for documentary films on, on television. And it'll be, that will be October 4th coming up. You want to be checking for this. And also it had a beautiful run of Fruits of Labor. It opened at the South by Southwest Film Festival, and it is currently 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. So for those of you who care about that kind of stuff, you should check that out as well. And uh, to you and your career, I mean, you have a wonderful career as a, a filmmaker, and I, I look forward to more from you and hope you'll come back when the opportunity presents itself. We've been talking with the, the director, producer, cinematographer, a person of many hats in making this film. That would be Emily Cohen Ibanez. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 